I want to talk to you about the glory of God, glorifying God with the life that you have. Very oftentimes we think that we could glorify God, but unfortunately, due to the circumstances, I'm going to have to postpone glorifying God in my life right now. I'm stuck in sin. I'm stuck in poverty. I'm stuck in, uh, I got so much going on. But really, the word, the, the word of God says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And in context, that does not mean you can still live out your dream football life. <laughs> no, I'm 50. I cannot become a professional football player. And uh, there are many things that we cannot do, and that is not referring to football or anything else, basketball. When God said that we can do all things, it meant that we can do what He has called us to do, which is to glorify Him. But what is it? What is the glory of God? And how can we glorify God with the life that we have? So I'm not sure about you, but I have for the longest time throughout my life read verses on giving God glory, but never really had a grasp on the practical outworking of what that looked like. How do I glorify God with the life that I have? How do I give God glory? The application was never clear to me. And as I attended public school in South Africa, uh, I remember reading the motto of our school system, the South African National Education Department had a motto, and this is what it used to be. Quote, Christian education for the glory of God. But that never made sense to me because I didn't have a grasp of what it meant to do something for the glory of God, especially not in math and science. <laughs> I read... Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, go to your biology class and do it for the glory of the Lord. <laughs> Made no sense to me. Psalm 72, verse 19 says, And blessed be the glorious name forever. Blessed be His glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with His glory. Now, I, I understood, and everybody that I know understands what it means that you should obey God. And we understand what it means that we should thank God and that we should praise God. But I, for the life of me, couldn't imagine what it meant to practi practically glorify God. And I couldn't make the distinctions between obeying, thanking, praising, worshiping, and glorifying God. Before that time, even, Earlier, before then, back in elementary school and then through high school, I attended a private school uh, for boys only. It was called the Drakensberg Boys Choir School. Their motto was, quote, singing to the glory of God. That kind of made sense to me because I kind of mixed up praise and giving Him glory, and I thought maybe that's the same thing. <clears throat> However, there has to be a distinction between what these words mean because it is a call the Scriptures call us to praise Him. The Scriptures call us to praise Him because He's great. It calls us to 
thank Him because He's good, and it calls us to worship Him because He's holy, and it calls us to glorify Him. All right, let's just glorify Thy name. Glorify Thy name. It's beautiful. Moves my heartstrings. Just quite didn't know how that is applied. I read 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That one I kind of understood as purity. Then 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You mean as in doing laundry? <laughs> and how would you apply that in your laundry time? Over there by the laundromat. How do we do this? So how can we glorify God and how can this be accomplished uh, in a practical way for you and I? How many of you are interested in knowing what it means to glorify God with the life that you have? Anybody? I would love to know. And so I believe that this is a very timely word for you and I both. But beyond just not having a clear, clear grasp as to what it means to glorify God, I came into the knowledge of the fact that glorifying God happens to be the primary and supreme purpose of my whole entire life. And this I came about when I was reading through The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And I was reading through The Purpose Driven Life and I thought, and I figured out, okay, I saw how the whole book was laid out, was to bring people from being a seeker to finding a meaningful life in serving at the church. All right, so I get it. So I'm like, wow, this couldn't be it. There has to be a purpose. How is it that we're always seeking after purpose and we're seeking after purpose? And then I came upon Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, and it says, Everyone who is called by my name. Now he's speaking to Israel, and Israel was dispersed at the time. He's chosen nation. He didn't choose the Hittites. He didn't choose the Amorites. He chose the Israelites, and they were dispersed. It's almost like uh, in the New Testament, we go like, well, that's not congruent with his nature. He wouldn't choose a specific people. That just couldn't be. It's not, that's not God's nature. Well, anyway... To put that argument aside, in the Old Testament, he actually did choose the Israelites, and they were dispersed at the time. And here he says, if you read the whole portion, he says, and I will bring all my children, my children alone, from the north, the south, and the east, and the west, and I will bring them together. And then he says, everyone of them who is called by my name, everyone whom I created for my glory. See that? So those whom he called by his name are in fact those who he made for this very purpose to glorify him. For his glory they were made. And therefore, those who have been called by his name for his purposes have been called to glorify him. And that includes you and I. So here I found that man's supreme and primary purpose in life is actually not to be a doctor or to be a teacher, is in fact to glorify God. It's not to be married. It's to glorify God in marriage. It's not to have children. It's to glorify God as a parent in your family. And so the primary purpose of our lives, therefore I saw, was to glorify God. And uh, therefore today, Hopefully, I believe that we will be able to establish a basic, basic working definition 
of what it means to glorify God with a life that we have. Well, if I had more money, I could glorify Him in a greater way. Maybe if you had less money, you could glorify Him in a greater way. Reminds me of this person. He was earning just a little bit of money, and he was, he was very consistent in his contribution to the church. And then he got this massive raise, and uh, he started earning three times the amount, and suddenly that percentage that he used to give has now just become too much. I mean, giving 10%, you know, of, uh, of a $10 an hour job is different than giving 10% of an $85 an hour job or a $150 job. So he went to the pastor. He says, Pastor, really, it's just, you know, I've gotten this big raise. I just, I'm not able to give the same percentage. I'm still going to give just a lesser percentage. Um, and the pastor says, well, let me pray for you, brother. And the pastor puts his hand on the guy's head, and he says, Father, I pray that you reduce my brother's income <laughs> all the way down to where he once again <laughs> can glorify you as he used to. Like David prayed, Lord, don't give me more than what my character can handle or less because I don't want to leave you. Neither do I want to steal and so defile your name. Anyhow, so I realized that it's glorifying God no matter what job I have, no matter how wealthy or how poor I am, no matter how single or how married I am, <laughs> going through good times or going through bad times to glorify God is to, in fact, fulfill the purpose for my very life. I have no other primary. I have secondary, but I have no other primary and supreme purpose than just that. So the first thing is the question that I want to answer is what is the glory of God and how can we identify the person who glorifies God? What is the glory of God and how can I know if I am the one glorifying Him? Well, the glory of God is the beauty of God. It is His splendor. It is His grandeur. It is His magnificence, His wonder, His impressiveness. It is His excellence. You know, when you look at something beautiful, it's almost like you ha you're intrigued by it. You see a beautiful painting, it goes, you have to look a second time, and then you walk towards it, and then it, then it engages you. And the glory of God is that. It's when you see something about God that makes you look twice, and then absolutely get fixated by just how beautiful, how grandeur, how majestic, how impressive, wonderful, and excellent, excellent He really is. That is when you see the glory of God. Now, His glory doesn't change because you saw it. No, you changed by seeing it. And that's what happens when you see God, you change. In that day, we will, uh, when we will see Him, and the day we see, when He comes, we will see Him, and we will be as He is because we saw Him. You see, the splendor of God is not only a material beauty, but it is an overwhelming awe it's an overwhelming awe and an overwhelming beauty expressed by also His character, His attributes, His person, God Himself. Because all things that exist, exists for God's glory. The glory of God, therefore, is expressed in, in everything that exists. It might express it in a different way, 
And today you're going to learn about some things that might absolutely shock you to realize that that, in fact, does express God's glory in a specific way. Because all things glorify God. Everything that's ever been created glorifies Him. Anything that ever exists glorifies Him in a different way. Math glorifies God. How? By putting God's perfection and God's beauty, on, uh, excuse me, God's perfection and God's faithfulness, always the same, on display. Science glorifies God by putting His rule over the universe and everything in it on display. Biology glorifies God by putting His creative creativity on display. History glorifies God by putting His sovereignty on display. No man has ever made history outside of God. The wicked, hold on to your seats. The wicked glorify God. Because the wicked puts God's justice on display. You see, if wickedness never entered the world, we would never know how God treats wickedness. We would never know God's justice until wickedness entered in. Sin glorifies God in a way. It's not that the sinner will be left unpunished. It's just that sin glorifies Him in a certain way. When you think about how sin puts on display God's holiness in comparison. See, if there was never a sin that entered into the world, we would never have known just how holy God is in relation to that sin. We would never know how pure He is really into that sin, uh, compared to that sin. We would never know how separate, because the word holy is the word separate. We would never know how separate God is from wickedness, darkness, and evil. So when you have this backdrop of darkness and wickedness and evil and sin, the darker the backdrop is, the brighter that light of God's holiness, His justice, His perfection shines. The darkness. You know, if you're an artist, you have to use certain colors, and certain colors pop really good, depending on the background, background of those colors that you use. If you use the wrong colors, it swallows up what you're trying to paint. We also see that repentant sinner glorifies God, and how? Well, consider how God's mercy, God's grace, His kindness, and His forgiveness is put on display every single time somebody falls to their knees and repents before the Lord. If somebody didn't ever repent, we would never have seen God's forgiveness. But because you have repented, you have seen God's forgiveness. Because you've repented and come to Him, you've seen His mercy and His goodness. Because you have seen the wicked, you now see in Scripture God's response to the wicked. You see His justice, that every single sin will be paid for either on the cross or in hell forever. But it will be paid. Why? Because God is just. His love doesn't override His justice. They're one and the same. It's called the doctrine of the simplicity of God. 
To deny the one is to do violence to the other. You see, the glory of God is seen within man and in the earth, but it's not of them. The glory of God is of God, but everything else only reflects that glory in a different way. So let's look at how the nature, what is the nature in the, of um, the creation that glorifies God? What is the nature of this glorifying? In Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, it says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The heavens proclaim. So we're talking about, um, you know, what does it look like when God's name is glorified, when God is glorified? But the Bible here says in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. So we want to find out what that means. It says, the skies display His craftsmanship. The skies display His craftsmanship. The heavens proclaim His glory. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make Him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Have you ever sat under a starry sky in the middle of the night? And you look up and you see the Milky Way and you see the universe. And you can hear your own heartbeat. Is that quiet? And you're just amazed. You're in awe of what it's communicating to you. And here it's saying that day and day after day, they continue to speak night after night. They make Him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, giving God glory. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. You see, the glory of God, the Bible says, can be seen in creation. Yet not everybody actually glorifies God, even though creation is glorifying Him. They live in this creation, but they don't glorify Him even though the creation does. But the creation isn't the source of that glory. That's kind of like mysticism and tree huggers and, you know, those kind of people. You see, the creation isn't the source of God's glory. The glory of God is the backdrop to this beautiful universe that's displayed to us. The glory of God is that source of all we're looking at and we're amazed at. Look at the heavens and think, for, think about the abilities of God. Have you ever looked at something just enormous and you go, wow, God is so, God is so powerful. Now, I used to go to the school, Drakensberg Boys Choir School, and it was like in the heart of the mountains, of the Drakensberg Mountains, absolutely beautiful. And uh, three times a year, we would go on a weekend away hiking trip and um, walk, hiking up Catkin Peak, Cathedral Peak. Um, it's some of the highest peaks in the mountain range in, in the whole of Africa. It's absolutely breathtaking. And I remember looking at that, and I'm thinking, wow, God made this? <laughs> it's like... Wow, and then you look up, and you see the sun, and you see the stars, and you see the moon. You go, God made that? And you think we're only in, in the Milky Way, that's all. <laughs> and there are so many more. 
You look at the heavens and you think about the creativity of God. Imagine that. Not just His ability, but His creativity. Not just His ability, His creativity, but His size. And you think about how impressive God really is and that He would think of you. When the heavens speak to you about God's attributes, His character, and His traits, that is when the heavens declare the glory of God. But that's the creation. Let's talk about the creature. Because we see that the creation glorifies God by putting on display His greatness, His, maj His majesty, just how able He is. But apart from the universe, the creation God also created what we know as the creature, and the creature also glorifies God. The question I would like to ask, that if God has all the glory, which the Bible says He does, and yes, He does have all the glory, it already belongs to Him. How are we then to give Him glory? He already has all of it. How can we give God something which is His in the first place? The key is found, or the answer is found in 1 Chronicles 16, 28 and 29. 1 Chronicles 16, 28 and 29. Here the Bible says, ascribe. Can everybody please say ascribe? ascribe. You know what would be wonderful? One day we will all be speaking King James to one another. Wouldn't that be great? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Now, so we have to ask our question, what does ascribe mean? Ascribe is to attribute, is to attribute something to someone. Therefore, we have to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is already His. How? By admitting all the glorious attributes of His person and all the things that He has done for us individually, for us corporately. In other words, to attribute to God all that is already His and all the things that He has already done. The person who talks about God, His divine attributes and just loves talking. I love talking about the divine attributes. Sometimes it comes, a bit little, it comes across a little cold because, <laughs> you know, we talk about the aseity of God and we talk about the eternality of God. Somebody, when I used to work at Menards, asked me, so, yeah, so where does God come from, dude? <laughs> and I said, well, if you understand the doctrine of the eternality of God, you wouldn't be asking me that dumb question. <laughs> but it's wonderful to talk about the attributes of God. And how they are all the same. It's not God who has all these different attributes plugged into Him. No, He is them. He is love. He is eternity. He is life. He is the same. He is separate. He is God. All in all. The person who always talks about the holy character of God, the righteousness of God, the acts of God, the goodness of God, the person who loves talking about this to others face to face is the one who's 
glorifying God at that time because he's, he's ascribing to God that which is due him. Can you see that? He's, he's attributing to God what is already true about God. He is glorifying God. We also see, and I'm going to just run through multiple ways of how we can see what it means for the creature to glorify God with a life that they have. And then I'm going to end up with five different questions you can ask yourself to see if, in fact, you are glorifying God with the life that you have. So secondly, we also see that man glorifies God because through man, God's glory can be seen in things belonging to God. Because we are jars of clay. And sometimes it's beautiful to see the glory of God seep through these jars of clay when that jar is in fact broken. It's when the perfume can come out, seep through, and the light is seen. That is what's so beautiful about a broken person. One that's not been broken by life. There are many of them walking around downtown homeless today, but broken by God, not through poverty, but because of our sin and our guilt. Remember, blessed are those who mourn. Why mourn? Because your girlfriend broke up with you? No. Who mourn the loss of their innocence before perfectly holy God. God is close to the brokenhearted. But this isn't true. Unless it's you look at somebody who's brokenhearted over the fact that they have been so prideful. Their hearts are broken when they know their sin before God is so many. So we see that we are the earthen vessels pots of clay which carry his glory. Second, Second Corinthians 4 verse 4 and 6. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 and 7 says this. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made us understand that it is the brightness of his glory that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. But this precious treasure, this light and power that now shines within us is held in a perishable container, a pot of clay, that is, in our weak bodies. You are the pot of clay. You, your body is weak. Your heart is broken. But this precious treasure of God, this light that shines from Jesus is now in you. And it says everyone can see that the glorious power within must be from God and is now, is not our own. This is how your life glorifies God. A person whose heart's not broken before the Lord, a broken and contrite heart will always glorify God. But the one who is not contrite, the one who does not have a broken heart, the one who does not mourn, that's why the doctrine of total depravity is just, is just an absolute must. You know, anthropology is the study of man, right? And humanism has a doctrine of anthropology. 
But when I came into Reformed theology, I realized just how seeped through and how soaked my theology was in humanistic anthropology. Because when I went to Scripture, I saw God dissect, define man in complete different terms than humanism does. And the doctrines of grace, starting off with total depravity, absolutely strips you of all things. And that's, that's where the gospel starts. Absolutely does. Leaves you with nothing to boast about. Nothing you've even actually done. It just leaves you like that tax collector versus the Pharisee who went to the temple. And the Pharisee was going like, thank you, God, that I'm not like these people. <laughs> thank you, God, that, you know, because, I mean, I, I pray a lot and I give a tremendous amount. And, and uh, wow, look at me. <laughs> the glory just beams from me. And then here comes a tax collector, the one known for sin. Pharisee is supposed to be known for his, his reverence before the Lord. But the tax collector comes and he weeps, falls on his knees and he beats his chest. And he goes, God have mercy, God have mercy. You see, there's something very interesting. Actually, Sid brought it up. <coughs> something very interesting with a broken heart. The broken and contrite heart. The one who repents truly before the Lord over their sin. They don't ever demand God show them mercy. No, God, Jesus died for everybody. Okay. You know, um, the Bible says actually, He came to save those that the Father had given Him. While grace is everybody's, mercy is everybody. You can't demand grace and mercy, you see. The moment you demand mercy, it's no longer mercy. The moment you demand grace, it's no longer grace. But it's something you cannot demand from somebody. God owes you no mercy. That's what makes it merciful. That's what makes it unspeakable. He owes you zero grace. To some, He's given grace, mercy. To others, He gives Justice, something every one of us deserve. The whole world deserves justice. And so to some, He gives justice. And to others, He chooses to give mercy upon whom He will be merciful. And He will be uh, compassionate towards those whom He will be compassionate towards. But it cannot be demanded. So to some, He gives justice. To others, He gives mercy. But God is never unjust. He's done no one harm. He's done no one wrong. If I decide, and here we have twins, Matthew and Nathan, if I decided that I'm going to take a $20 bill and I'm going to give it to one and not to the other, am I cruel? Absolutely not. How do you mean somebody is cruel by blessing somebody? Oh, but in the West, I'm not happy. He's got two cars, I got none. This is not right. Call up the government, take a car away from him, give me one. 
You, you don't, if I give, if I show mercy to one person, can the other person go like, where's mine? Maybe it just shows you just how crooked men's thoughts are. If God is good to some, why is he evil? He became evil because he showed goodness. He's never unjust. So it says in verse 7, but, the precious, but this precious treasure, this light and power that now shines within us is held in a perishable container that is in our weak bodies. Everyone can see that the glorious power within must be from God and is not our own. So I can feel like there's some confusion. Let me put it in a different context. <laughs> Let me put it in a different context. Let's say, for instance, Tom over here and Alex over there both steal $10 from me. All right? Both of them get convicted because they stole $10 from me. They both come to me separately and they repent. And they say, Jacques, Tom goes, Jacques, I stole $10 from you. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And Alex comes and he says, Jacques, I feel so bad. I stole $10 from you. Please forgive me. I feel so bad. I'm like, you're forgiven. Tom, you're forgiven. Alex, you're forgiven. But you know what, Alex? I'm going to ask you to give me that $10 back. Tom, pretend like it never happened. Just move on. Alex, you're forgiven too. Can I have my $10 back, please? Am I cruel? Come on now. Isn't it my money? Can't I choose to do whatever I want to? Can, can, can Alex demand at this point, now that I've forgiven him, can he demand that I not ask for that $10 back? Come on now, folks. I can be merciful to whomever I choose to show mercy. I'm required to forgive all. But mercy cannot be earned. Neither can it be demanded. Grace cannot be earned. Neither can it be demanded. So what are these things belonging to God that we as earthen vessels, pots, carry inside of us? You guys need to go read Romans, all right? What is inside of us and what do we carry in these pots that are so precious? Well, we carry the light of the world. We carry the very gospel of Jesus Christ which is the power of God unto salvation. We carry the very message of God's grace. We carry the hope, eternal hope for this world. That is what's inside of you. And that is what comes out. And when it does, God is glorified. That means God is glorified in our lives when we allow this light of Christ to shine. When we, in fact, carry the gospel to another God is glorified. When we hold forth God's word of truth, God is glorified. Even if it's unpopular, God is glorified. And that's why as a church, uh, we will do more of the same. But this year alone, we have an effort called Christmas Trilogy where we are going to work towards an opportunity for us to allow this treasure, this precious treasure in us to be communicated to others 
as we reach out during the Christmas season. See, there are many attributes of God that show forth His glory. For instance, the mercy of God. When the mercy of God that He has shown you seeps from you to another, God is glorified. The love of God. You see, the love that God had for you, when it seeps out into the relationships around you, God is glorified by it. The kindness of God that He has shown you, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. When it affects the way you live and the way you respond to others, God is glorified. A person glorifies God when his or her life reflects these same characteristics, these godlike characteristics or these godlike traits. When these characteristics seep through your life, God is glorified. So the conclusion is the glory of God is the beauty and the splendor of God seeping through the creation and through human humans. So the second question I want to ask, if you will, if you will um, stay focused, I think this will be tremendously helpful. The second question I want to ask is this. How can we deliberately choose to glorify God? How can we deliberately choose to glorify God? Psalm 24, 7 says, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. The word glory there is the word kabod, K-A-B-O-D, which is the word weight, weight. It's getting a um, little cold. It's the word weight. The Hebrew word translated glory in Psalm 24 um, is the same over and over again and is used figuratively as the one whose argument carries weight. Now, follow me in this. Two people debating a subject, and the one person's points that he's making are real valid. And his argument carries a lot of weight. In front of a judge, that's the person who's going to be ruled in favor of because his arguments carried weight. Or you might say the content of this book is weighty. It means meaty. It's deep. It's strong. It's not surface fluffy knowledge. It's, it's meaty. So therefore, calling God... The king of glory is calling him the king with the most influence, with the greatest importance, with the highest authority. He is the king of glory. So the conclusion here is that the person who takes God more serious than anything else in life is the person who glorifies him. In other words, when God says something, is it a weighty matter to you? Or do you wonder about it? Mm, I don't know. I don't know what... I don't know what I'm going to do with Romans chapter 9. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to do with John chapter entire 17. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> you know, I'll just, you know, I'll just pass by a couple of things because it's simply not weighty. And that's a person who does not glorify God. You see, the way my son responds to what I tell him is his attitude toward me, right? <laughs> Make sense? His attitude toward me 
is reflected within the tone of his voice and the content of his response. <laughs> even if he has a note, even if he has a beautiful tone, no, Daddy, I will not obey you. It's still <laughs> showing his heart, correct? And so what I'm saying is the way we respond to a very word of God that we see in scriptures determines whether we glorify God or not. If we take it lightly, that is not glorifying God. If it's a weighty matter to us, and our hearts are smote by it, and broken by it, and we fall to our knees because of it, and we repent now that we've heard this word. Now that is a person giving God glory. Who is the person that does not? Who is the person that does not trivialize the word of God, the things of God, the work of God? That's the person that glorifies God. Who is most serious about what God said in His Word? Who is the person that finds God's words and His work heavy, weighty? In other words, serious, important, significant, supreme. Those who take God so seriously, they will give up what they want so God can get what He wants from them. That's the person that glorifies God. So if you're interested, and I'm going to close with this, if you're interested in deliberately glorifying God with your life, ask yourself these four questions. The first is, do you ascribe glory to His name by regularly speaking to others about the Lord? His greatness, His mercy, his salvation of you. Number two, do you have evidence of growing in the traits that belong to God? In other words, do you have evidence of growing in humility, in mercy, in selfless sacrifice? Do you have evidences that you are growing in the traits of kindness, God's kindness, kindness to others because of the kindness you've received. Mercy to others because of the mercy you've received. You know, just to be, just to be a um, morally superior person from Hollywood does not mean when they show kindness, <laughs> that does not mean it's the kindness of God. The, if you're showing the kindness of God to somebody else, you are being kind to somebody because you are driven by the fact that he showed kindness to you. In Hollywood, and I'm just doing generally speaking, of course, I'm sure there's a Christian somewhere in Hollywood. But in, but, uh, in, in, in that context there, people's kindness is, is in fact displaying their goodness. The kindness you show is displaying God's goodness. I'm kind because God was kind to me. People over there, they will say, no, I'm kind because I'm morally superior. Me, I. Glory shining from here. See? And we have to make that distinction. So the first question is, do you ascribe glory to His name by regularly speaking to others about the Lord? Number two, do you have evidences of growing in the traits that belong to God? Number three, do you attach weighty, serious importance to the things of God? Or do you belittle that? 
It's always a secondary priority, never primary. Do you play down the things of God? Make light of prayer. Do you tone down worship? Meditation on the Word. Doctrine is not, it's just a word we use to describe God's position on important issues like salvation. So the question I have is, do you, do you play down doctrine? Make light of the things of God, making the things of God an option instead of a priority. The last question you can ask yourself is, do your decisions reflect God's glory or do they reflect the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life? Are you just another typical Westerner that lives to have a white picket fence, impress the Joneses, and then retire comfortably? Is this the goal of life? That is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So the question is, can you look at your decisions you've made over the last 12 months and ref look at your decisions to see if they reflect God's glory or do they reflect your comfort and security? Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word and that we will not make light of a weighty subject, that we will not make light of your glory. Lord, that we will prioritize your word in our lives, that we will not be lazy, but you will find us to be students of God, approved by you, God, because we are dividing the word rightly to the best of our ability. Lord, I pray that you cause us as a congregation to grow in glorifying you, not thinking that we've glorified you because we have sung our favorite song, but that we glorify you because our lives have been altered, that those precious those precious things that you have placed within us are seeping through into the world and to those around us. Lord, thank you that we will have broken and contrite hearts because a sacrifice is not what you're looking for, but you are looking for, as you told David, a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that has been circumcised by your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word?